So I was standing on top of the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. I had this moment that would ultimately change the trajectory of my life and my family's life and would create kind of a dotted line that would lead me right to this moment and this conversation that we're having. Before I talk about what happened on top of that mountain, let me first just say thank you. It's incredible to be at Northview. Uh, I love this place. I watch this place from a distance as CJ said, uh, sorry, Pastor CJ, as, uh, as Pastor CJ said, we have been friends with the Johnsons for a long, long time. And, and while CJ centered himself in the conversation that it was about me and CJ, the reality was that the uh, first lady, Kristen, was my eldest daughter's first nanny. And um, so she helped in the rearing of my eldest. And over the years, my family has grown. We've gotten a lot bigger. And the Johnsons have been a part of my family's journey for quite a while as we have gone from the oldest there in the overalls to um, five kiddos now. They have been there in every season alongside of us in the highs and the lows, both in my family, in my city, in the spiritual journey, and in our co-laboring to share this good, good gospel anywhere possible. And here's what I will say, because I know, you know, most of you really like the Johnsons. I am an expert in the Johnsons. I've known them longer than any of y'all have, and Pastor CJ is literally my favorite communicator on any stage anywhere. He's a better man off the stage. I promise you that. It's, uh, it's also an honor to be able to say thank you in person. Uh, as Pastor CJ talked about, Venture is a partner because of your generosity, because of the investment in the giving. And, and please recognize this, we're just one story. You all are impacting the world through so many organizations that, that meet needs right here in the greater, I'm gonna just say the Indianapolis Metroplex um, and all around the world. What you do, if you have given at any moment to this house, the voices that you heard on that screen, some of the stories that we'll tell in the places that maybe you've never even heard about or thought about this morning, you are impacting. Whether you feel super spiritual or you feel more like Pastor CJ, anywhere in that spectrum, you are impacting the world, so thank you so much. We, we work in the toughest places and strategically, we identify this intersection of unsafe, unreached and under-resourced, unsafe. What that really looks like is uh, one of the countries we serve in is the longest ongoing civil war, 70 years. Uh, as I think about this week, and we've seen the devastation of what violence and bombs do, and then I think about our partners in this particular country for 70 years that have been moved off their land, and uh, the government has committed ethnic genocide against them, and, and our distinct pleasure to come alongside of those who are without housing instability. We have, uh, we work with, in communities where less, uh, up to 90% of girls are being trafficked. And I have to take a moment to tell you what that looks like because sometimes when we talk about causes, it just is this like bumper sticker concept or idea. And so if you will just give me one minute, it's gonna be more difficult before it gets easier. In the places where we serve, when we talk about 90% of the girls being trafficked, we're talking seven, eight, and nine-year-olds being sold. And when that happens, they're abused 20 and 30 times a day. 
mentally, physically, sexually. So when we talk about programs that rescue, we're talking about radical transformation of their lives and generational. We serve in countries where it is illegal to meet more than nine people, places where some of our partners are killed simply for sharing the hope of the gospel and giving aid. And so those are the unsafe places, and that intersects with unreached. Unreached places because we're so passionate that the gospel is the number one source of transformation for an individual or for um, entire communities. We target places that have never heard the name of Jesus. Less than 2% out of every 100 people, less than two have heard the name of Jesus or know that God has a design where they can thrive. And it's our privilege to share that. And then third, under-resourced. With all of this need, all of the lack of safety, the lack of hearing the gospel, we choose to be in places where the Christian church is only investing 1% of all giving. That might be one of the greatest injustices. Where it's needed the most, we're investing the least, and that's where we want to be because it's tough. And because of the courage and tenacity of our partners at the end of that video, you saw Phoenix come up, and then you see me with these glasses, and you might think I'm going to do a diatribe on Harry Potter. I'm not. The phoenix actually was a symbol that the early church chose very early on. They said, this is a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's our shared story that we can rise up stronger. Wherever you are at, as you are listening to this, no matter how you felt when you started, please know that the promise is that you can rise up stronger. This is what Jesus allows us to do, and I see it in our partners. Just this last year, because of your generosity, check out what's happened. Our partners have provided more than nine million meals to people who are diseased and displaced and dying of hunger. Nine million. Last year alone, we provided rescue to more than 500 girls from being trafficked. 500, that's incredible. Our partners, they're courageous in some of the most difficult situations. We invested in more than 500 uh, farming situations. We, we uh, provided more than 6,000 feminine hygiene trainings so that women would understand, and men, because you're a little slow to the game, that how God has beautifully made their bodies, that they are part of the Imago Dei, and there is a plan. And when women find out that God, not the power structures, have created them to be powerful. They rise up. They lead in their communities. They demand their land rights. They demand safety for their kids. They are the impetus for transformation powered by the gospel. And I am so proud of our partners who stand up and speak truth to power. And the one thing we know is the greatest source of transformation is the gospel. In the presence of a local church, because we serve in unreached areas, our partners in one year have planted over 1,200 churches just this last year. Yeah, that is because we know, we know here at Northview that churches can change entire cultures and entire communities and are God's choice to change the world. So thank you for being a part of this incredible work, which brings me back to that mountain. So we were climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. My wife and I were climbing it. We were, we were leading a team of 10 people, and we were raising money for this marginalized group of girls that were literally living in a dump. And we wanted to provide 
uh, funds for education and to share the hope of the gospel to, so that each of these girls would know that God made them with a special purpose. And just like if you have a daughter, you want to give them the freedom to dream about who they were created to be. This is what we wanted. And so we were climbing this mountain as part of this project that we were doing. And, and on the last day, we decided we were going to hike through the night to get to the summit. It was going to be about eight hours, but the goal was to get to the summit by sunrise. Beautiful, right? Until you wake up at 11 at night and you are sick as you have ever been. I had some stuff going on. Mountain altitude sickness means you're getting high up and there's less oxygen um, in your blood, less blood to your brain. And while I am not a uh, nurse or a doctor, here's what I know. Some nasty things were happening in my body and I had to hike for eight hours. So I just went one foot in front of the other. It was literally the longest eight hours of my life got to the summit, and I thought I was going to have this moment. My wife had a camera. I was going to do a video. I would show Northview. Northview, you'd be so impressed and inspired, and all I could think of is, take the picture. I got to get off this mountain. I am so sick. And as I was walking down the mountain, there was a verse that came to me, and the verse is found by the great prophet and poet in Isaiah. And Isaiah 58 says this, if you are generous with the hungry and you start giving yourselves, in some translations it says, if you give yourselves fully to those who are down and out, then your lives will begin to glow in the darkness and your dark night will be like the noonday and I will always show you where to go. And there's this moment because I am so exhausted and I realized that that exhaustion was giving myself fully on behalf of these young girls, these marginalized community, and something actually awakened in me. If you've ever encountered part of the kingdom, and you're like, oh, that's what that part of the book meant. This was that moment. And it changed me, and it moved me, and my wife and I began this longer conversation, and we ended up quitting our job and selling our house and deciding that we wanted our kids to understand the kingdom through the eyes of the poor and the oppressed. More than 15% of all scripture is about God's economy to create space for everybody. And we decided that this was the steps that we were going to take. And over the years, I've looked back at that verse and specifically this if-then statement. If you're generous then some really good stuff happens. If you're generous, you, your dark night becomes like the noonday. God shows you everywhere to go. The verse later talks about you'll be like a well-watered garden, which is an allusion back to the Garden of Eden where everything is flourishing and thriving. And if I stepped in in this moment and said, hey, I can guarantee that you can know exactly where God wants you to go. He's going to give you direction and provision. All you have to do is this one thing, is live this generous life. Now, I started paying attention to it because up to that point, generosity to me was just about money. And it was limited to wealthy people. If you're wealthy in the house here like I am, super bougie. Um, if you... I felt like the more wealthy you were, the better chance you had to be generous. But if you think about that, that means wealthy people have greater access to God's direction and provision. And that is the opposite of what the economy of the kingdom says. It gives invitation to all of us. Not just people who quit their job and run a nonprofit, or not just people who are pastors or board members, not just people who are super spiritual, or not people who are just starting their spiritual journey, but literally the invitation to a generous kingdom life is for all of us. So I started paying attention to that. Started thinking that generosity must be bigger than just money. 
Now, generosity by Webster's definition is simply the act of being kind or generous, which seems a little bit milk toast to me, a little bit vanilla. And my English teacher always told me that you can't define a word with the word, but anyway. Um, so I started going, this, this thing must be bigger, and I wanted to pay attention to it. And as Pastor CJ says a lot, when you bump into scripture, right? So I'm trying, if you ever say, I want to understand your plan, God, would you reveal it's going to happen? Things are going to pop in scripture and they're going to pop in your conversations and you're going to turn on the radio and Bono's going to sing you some good truth that you're like, wow, that's okay. You know, it just comes in random places. I, it's kind of like I bought my, my daughter recently. We got her a Honda Element, really, really nice, you know, 20-year-old vehicle. Um, and if you've ever bought a vehicle and you never really paid attention to it, but then once you get the vehicle, you see them all over the road, Right. I found out that there were three elements right in my neighborhood. I, like, never paid attention. In the same way, the invitation is for you to consider maybe asking king and kingdom to show you what generosity looks like. And I pray that it would be revealed specifically for you and your situation. For me, as I started looking at it, one of the verses that came, that popped up, that has been anchoring for me in understanding generosity is found in, in Matthew 14. And it's a story that... Many of us know uh, it's a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you grew up in the church as a young kid, you love these miracle stories. And as you get older, you wrestle with the, the dynamics of, of how the kingdom continues to provide. But the general story is Jesus is teaching a group of people and they're hungry at the end. Maybe as you will be when I'm done. Uh, I'm not equating myself with Jesus just because I have long hair. I'm just trying to... Uh, The group of people are on the side, and they're hungry, and Jesus says, hey, we're going to take care of this, and so they gather a little bit of bread, and he gives thanks, and then he passes it on and gives the food to the other people through the disciples. And in that moment, as I was reading and looking at him, like, there is an order to this thing, and he first gave thanks, and then he gave the bread, okay? He first gave thanks, and then he gave the bread, and, and in that moment, I think what we see is that Gratitude actually precedes generosity. In fact, I think gratitude turns ordinary giving into generosity. We give for a lot of reasons. You give out of emotion. You give out of compulsion. You give out of obedience. You give out of obligation. And none of those are inherently wrong. And if you want to give me money afterwards, I will take it for whatever your reason is. <laughs> but here... What he's talking about, what is being revealed, is that out of a heart of gratitude, it turns ordinary giving into generosity because gratitude, what it does is it provides perspective. It fills in the gaps. It centers us. It gives us an, a new perspective. This morning, when most of us woke up, we woke up in nice houses with full closets, full pantries, even full garages. And we rolled either to our couch to watch or we rolled to our car to get here and we went through an ungodly amount of roundabouts, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> okay, so real quick on the roundabouts, I got no problem with them, right? But roundabouts and Siri and Maverick City, here's my problem. I'm on my way to church and Chandler Moore is getting me pumped up. He's talking about building my church, right? He's like, build your church, build your, get in the left lane and go in this roundabout. Build your church, build your church. And the gates of hell will go in this next roundabout. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen with the gates of hell because I am too busy trying to figure out which lane I need to. It's complicated. 
Gratefulness gives us perspective. And we woke up and we had stuff and we had freedom and we had choice. 18,000 kids under the age of five this morning will die today and every day from hunger and health-related diseases that are preventable. This morning, one-third of the entire global population will try to figure out how to make it through the day on less than $2. Not just $2 to, you know, go get half of a burger, but $2 that has to cover shelter, it has to cover all of their clothing, it has to cover food, and they'll try to do this day after day after day. And, and here's the deal, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or feel overly sad about these people or feel super guilty because you got to pick between a couple of different cars. That's not actually how God talks to us at all. Gratitude is a way for us to have perspective and say, in light of. In light of what I have and in light of what other people are going through, I feel so grateful. And then we talk about that the God of the universe has freed our soul and the gratefulness that we have there. In our, in our house, we, we teach the phrase, in light of. I tell my kiddos, hey, you can ask for whatever you want. You can want whatever you want. There's a really good chance you're not getting any of it. But you can want whatever you want in light of in light of what you already have and in light of what others don't have. It creates perspective. If one of my girls wants a new doll, in light of the fact that you already have six dolls, doesn't make having six dolls bad. Doesn't make wanting a seventh doll to be bad. But maybe you just consider that and then consider in my neighborhood, there are a lot of kids that don't even eat until they go to school and maybe don't have a lot of dolls. And so maybe we can teach that, hey, if I have six dolls, maybe I could give one, or if I get this seventh doll, maybe I could give two over here. The invitation of the kingdom is for us to understand what he's done for us and to see it and see other people and help them. My older daughter wanted a cell phone. It's a complicated conversation that parents have. Um, in our house, you don't get a cell phone until you're in high school. Uh, sorry, kids who've been working your folks. Um, and my daughter, man, when she, she's like at a, she was a dog on a bone in middle school, man. She wanted her iPhone. Dad, dad, can you please just give me an iPhone? All of my friends have iPhones. I'm like, oh, that's easy. Just hang out with poorer friends. And, <laughs> and while I was being somewhat sarcastic, I'm also being somewhat truthful. If we only hang out with people that are exactly like us or have more than us, we will be very unsatisfied people. We will always be jealous. We will always be striving, and there's nothing wrong with striving. But if we're striving to always attain this, and we don't understand the perspective of what's going on, then, then the Bible calls it for you, King James people, covetousness. You know, we always want this, and we forget that we have so much that we can be grateful for, all of us, all of us in this place. And that is part of the kingdom economics of generosity, it starts with gratefulness and that moves us to generosity and invites, invites us all to partic participate in something that will give us everything that God has for us. The, the word generosity, the etymology of it in the 16th century, simply related to people who, who were noble. If it was said that you were generous, it meant that you were born to noble you know, bloodlines, if you watch The Crown or Downton Abbey, maybe you'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, and then, as you get a little bit um, further, a few centuries later, generosity was about being just wealthy. 
If you were generous, you were wealthy. You didn't even have to give it away. Now, that's a, that's a bonus, right? Call generous. I don't got to give any money. Um, and then over time, up to the present day, we do it a little bit better uh, when we consider generosity is really how we give, how we partake. I like this definition for myself. I like the idea that generosity is the giving of good things freely and abundantly. The giving of good things, not just money, and not just for some groups of people, but we can give good things wherever you are at. I was reading uh, in 1 Corinthians, it's about the Macedonian church, and I'm going I'm to read it word for word because it's really beautiful in the message, and it says, now friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. If you are pushed to the limit, lean in. The trial exposed the true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there, and I saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. And here's, here's what grabbed me. They were going through a difficult trial and they were poor. We usually section that off as the people we feel bad for. You do not have to feel bad. You do not have to call them victims. In that space, you know what they choose to have? Joy and generosity. How much more should we in this room and online and in this moment be looking for out of gratitude? How can I create space for us to be joyful and generous? What does that look for? And what kind of kingdom juju happens that these people in a difficult place who are already poor can look to be generous and joyful? And I think what it invites us to is that generosity isn't just about money. It's not just, it's about us. It's about giving fully. That church in Macedonia was giving their time. They were giving their emotion. They were caring. They were connecting with people. And they were saying, I'm so connected to you. I will help further whatever you need. I love this idea because generosity invites us to give not only our money, but also our time. Statistically, the wealthier you are, you'd rather actually give money than time because your time is, is very valuable. One of our partners, um, her name's Rosebell. Pastor CJ has met Rosebell. She's Mama Rosebell. Uh, she, she was a refugee her whole life. At age 16, she took her first orphan. She was a single, poor, young woman, and she took her first orphan. By 18, she had five orphans. She gets married. Then she has 10 orphans. She speeds it up, and, well, dot, dot, dot. Now she provides for 5,000 orphans and 300 widows and oversees a network of 87 pastors that is caring. Yeah, and, but it started with, what can I do to help? And here was her thing with God. She read in scripture, there is a biblical principle about giving a tithe. And I'm not going to do a theological treatise on this, but I will say the historic teaching in the church aligns with places where, hey, let's look at this 10% and pay attention to it. But Rosebell had no money. So she's like, okay, I'll tithe my time. And so for the last 30 years, Rosebell has prayed two and a half hours every single day. I mean, for me, I'm signing up for 10% of my money. 
twin. I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. Another one of our partners, how they are approaching this idea of generosity in an impoverished area, a place where it is so dangerous to just provide relief to ethnic minorities that the UN has said their government is committing genocide over. In that space, um, this person, Cuckoo, has been delivering meals to IDP camps, that's internally displaced people, people hiding and living in the jungle, to AIDS communities, to leprosy colonies, committed to just sharing with the most marginalized, providing these meals, and yet at the same time we had four partners that died for doing the very things that she is doing. And so we wrote to her and we said, we're considering suspending the feeding program for your safety. She sent me back an email. I felt slapped across the face. Look at what this said. I will not run away from Yangon. I will never leave my people in trouble for the safety of me and my family. No matter how difficult it is, I will always be in Yangon for my people. It is my calling from God. It's my commitment to help my people as much as I can. Shouldn't we help more when people are in trouble? Shouldn't we help more? Who are your people? Who is around you, your family, your people? What does it look like for you in the face of the greatest trial for you to go, shouldn't we help more? What does it look like? And, and let me, sometimes it might be easy to think about money. Sometimes it might be easy to think about time. But what about in your family? Are you generous with your emotional availability to your spouse? Are you generous with your encouragement to your children? Are you generous with your time with your children? I am so impressed. I was talking to Pastor CJ and Kristen um, yesterday, and I said, man, your kids are so great. I, I, the amount of time, how do you find that time? Do you know Pastor CJ spends two hours every single day with one of his kids because it is her passion, and he invests time every single, I mean, I got five kids. I'm lucky for 15 apiece before I just need to, you know, take a little breather. I call my wife. She asked how it went um, as I was uh, rolling in yesterday, and I'm like, how was your day? And she's like, well, I'm on like hour eight of taking out the girl's hair. But this, this is what mamas do. They create space, and they tell their kids that they have infinite value, and they express that with a generosity of time and heart and encouragement. This is what we get to be a part of. The global economy investing, the kingdom economy that invites us to be grateful and then to be generous creates space for incredible things to happen. Back to that 10%. Now, American Christians are, are very generous with their wealth. 2.5%, that is the average. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you might go, oh, we're supposed to get to 10%, but 2.5 is like 25 times more generous than the average American, so you're doing really great. But let's just say... The Bible's serious about a concept of 10%. I was reading a book, the author was Rich Stearns, that said, hey, let's look at what that other 7.5% would look like. Do you know if just the American church gave the other 7.5%, that would be $168 billion in one year. And it would eradicate extreme global poverty. It would provide education for everybody. It would provide healthcare for everybody. There'd be like 60 plus billion left over, which would pay off every church in America and every pastor said amen to that. And there would be stuff left over. Here's the thing. God's plans are good. This concept of generosity centers the church as the hope of the world. 
centers the church as the answer for every crisis that we have. Health, education, safety, oppression, people that wake up that don't know that the God of the universe has created a system for them to thrive because they have the Imago Dei. This is why the conversation around generosity is so critical. Gratefulness leads to generosity, and then generosity leads to good. And I don't mean good like, you know, if you wear a Coda Paxi shirt, which is an outdoor apparel organization, and it says do good and you feel good about it. Nothing wrong with that. It's very bright colors. Nice. Uh, but good, biblically, in the kingdom, ladders back to the original ancient text in the book of Genesis where God is an artist, an architect, and a creator. And he's creating this garden where everything thrives, it says. At the end of every day, it says it's tov. That's the Hebrew for it's good. And then a couple of pages later, Tov ends up being broken. Broken people, broken relationships, broken communities. And the rest of the book is about God pursuing all of that brokenness and inviting to reconcile to him and then us to be a part of this ongoing reconciling work of restoring Tov in people's lives and in community. And when we live this generous life, when we're grateful and generous, then we get to start partaking in good, which is what happens when you create time and space and generosity. Because if you're giving, you have to understand you're part of this story. Watch what good looks like in Hannah's life. My parents and village people work in the gravel pit. During rainy season, work is not possible since the shores are flooded. Many people go hungry from the little they earn from selling sand. Therefore, people are compelled to sell their bodies. In Nepal, there is a caste system. Brahman is the highest caste. Badi are a part of the Dalit, which is the lowest, the untouchable caste. When I was small, our friend and her husband lived near our house and they would often come to visit. The husband told my sister that he wanted to take her to visit our mother's birthplace in Ramgat. Instead, he took her in a tractor, where he drugged her to make her unconscious. He sold her for $30. I started losing consciousness from the shock of losing my sister. So my father took me to the hospital in Nepal Gunj. When the doctor checked the x-ray, he read the report that I was Badi. He then tried to rape me. Later, I told my father that my doctor tried to rape me. My father said, if we say something to anyone, they will not treat us. To whom shall we complain?
When I met Hannah, her ace was a crucial ace to be sold out in Delhi. And she has also had great fear that somebody will destroy her life. So it took a long time for me to establish relationship. And then I began to build relationship with Hannah, her father. I began to share my heart to them that in order to protect them, we would start hostel or home in Kathmandu and uh, give them education. And when I shared this, they, they got excited. When I went to the hostel, the behavior of the people there changed me. After going there, I learned what real love looks like. And the thing that changed me most has been getting to know Jesus. In seven years of time, out of 700 people, 400 people have come to know the Lord. And today, by the power of the gospel, the village is changing. And the former trafficker who sold Hannah's sister is the pastor of that church. I'm very thankful to the Lord for venture because partnership is helping us to fulfill our daily needs in the hostel, in the schools, everywhere. And together we are going to stop human trafficking in Badi people. what I want to be a part of. It's the gospel that transforms. That when somebody says, to whom shall we complain? A group of people in Indiana. Connected to people you don't even know, but because we take seriously this idea of we are grateful for what we have and we have the opportunity to live generous lives and we can be a part of good. And if you're like a lot of people, you maybe got stopped up at one point where how does the trafficker become the pastor? First of all, the gospel is powerful for the oppressed and the oppressor. The reason the pastor even became a Christian was because Hannah read a book once. And in the book it said to be forgiving, seven times 70. She goes, oh, I guess I have to go forgive. And got on a bus and went back to her village and forgave and it was the hardest thing she said she ever did. And that man was so overwhelmed that he not only became a Christ follower, but as he's pastored and reconciled to their family, he has gone and he has freed almost every single person that he has ever trafficked. It's a complicated thing, I get it. In a room and online, I get that people have been abused and there is a need for justice and it's complicated over there. But what I want you to know is our invitation is to be a part of stories like Hannah and full disclosure, that video is like 10 years old. Can I tell you just really quick kind of the, the rest of the story as Paul Harvey used to say? Hannah, because of the anointed 
presence on her life. We brought her over to the United States to share her story in a few places. People were so moved that she got not one but two full-ride scholarships to universities. On top of that, she had not one but two full books written about her. She's been on major news broadcasting. There was a lawyer that said he would do all of her citizenship papers pro bono, which if you are in many parts of the world, to have citizenship in the U.S. is the goal. It's like unthinkable. She had somebody that opened up their home and she lived in a multi-million dollar home off the coast of Miami and everything was going great. It was a great redemptive story. And then a global health pandemic hit and she felt like God said, be grateful and go back. And she went back to Nepal and she rented a 400 square foot apartment and let 10 other women live with her. I live with five women in a lot more than 400 anyway. <laughs> and she, she started saying, God, show me how to help these women are so vulnerable. So she started her own organization that addressed gender-based violence and feminine hygiene and training people in, in how God made their body. And oh, you know, over the last two years, she's only trained 45,000 women saying the Imago Day is in you and you can rise up and those women are rising up and transforming communities. And then she saw another group of vulnerable people a year ago, and she said, you know what, these 37 women, you know what I'm going to do? Even though I didn't take the full-ride scholarship, I left it to come back here, she raised enough money, an education endowment for 37 girls can pick whatever college or vocational training they want and raise enough money for a facility for them so that they can thrive. Next year, we're going to have twice as many. Oh, and by the way, when she's not doing all of those things, this last year, Hannah personally rescued 10 girls herself, went to India, went into the brothel, and physically, and I'm not encouraging this, with the pimps and rescued girls. When we are grateful for what God has done in our life and where we are at, whether we are in Carmel, whether we are in the greater Indianapolis Metroplex, or whether we're in Nepal, it creates space for us to live a generous life. And that generosity, mark my words, does good. It restores Tov. And I'm just going to say that's what I want to be a part of in this day and age when everybody has their opinions and says their things. I want the world to see Northview as more grateful, more generous, and more good. I want to be a part of something that is pure, that is beautiful, that is a representation of Christ's love for us to the world. And so you may be, you may be sitting there going, I, I ain't going to start a nonprofit. I'm not going to India to rescue girls. Where do we start? One of Venture's core values is to copy Jesus. Why don't we start there? Back in Matthew 14, he took bread and he gave thanks. And so I'm going to invite all the campuses to join us in a simple step. We're going to pray. Actually, I'll do it for you. You don't even have to do it. I am going to pre-pray for the meal that you will go towards. And then maybe this week you would consider bumping into the scripture, as the good pastor says, and asking God to reveal what it looks like for you to be grateful, generous, and to hear his whisper that you are invited to be a part of good. God of the universe, we thank you for the meal that we are about to receive. We take a deep breath, thank you, that we eat, that we have clothes, homes, cars, meaningful employment, and freedom. Thank you. 
And we think of those people who don't have any of those things. We're going to pay attention to your whisper inviting us to be a part of your good story. That maybe right now somebody is praying, to whom shall we complain? Would your spirit invite us to be part of your good answer and your good gospel, freeing people and restoring them in relationship with you for your kingdom and your glory? Amen.